If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willerskin booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, uh, top a couple of stories coming out right now. Um, uh, 50 new poll from Angus Reed 50% 57% uh, and this is all parties uh 57% say that the prime minister should step down and resign uh 3 out of 10 say that he should stay this is a new Angus Reed poll now within liberals or people who voted for the liberals in the last election uh 44% should said he should stay 41% uh, said that they should go. Two and five that had voted liberal last time said that he should step down. And as the uh, most uh, favorable leader to lead the country, Prime Minister, uh, Pierre Polyev coming in at 30%, Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh literally tied uh, 16 and 15% uh, for the two of them. So uh, it continues, it continues, it continues. And, you know, I think more people have just tuned out now because there's just so many other things going on in the world. Uh, an agreement is reached. This is Great. Speaking of uh, of uh, the stuff that's going on in the world, and this, of course, right to the front burner as of uh, last weekend, and that is there is an agreement has been reached. Uh, President Joe Biden, uh, Biden, U.S. President Joe Biden, is in Israel, and he's been there trying to uh, hammer out a humanitarian aid corridor, uh, an agreement to get help into those who need it in Gaza, and it looks like they have reached some sort of an agreement. However. At this point, it really is, uh, um, well, there's no details or timeline for any of this. But the good news is, is they have made an agreement in order to get that done. So how that takes shape, not too sure. But obviously, President Joe Biden in Israel trying to push that forward. Also, uh, out of that same conflict, uh, horrific, horrific images of a hospital that has been blown up in all of this. Uh, 100 dead. You know, what more do you need to say about that? Uh, both sides blaming each other for the hospital attack. Uh, Israelis saying that this is a wayward missile that was shot from Gaza that went astray and landed on the hospital. And we certainly know what has happened there. So more tragedy in that conf- uh, in that conflict. Uh, and Wab Canoe sworn in as the first, fir- uh, first First Nations premier in Canadian history. And of course, uh, uh, Manitoba is the province that he has been representing. Way back when, uh, a Métis premier had been sworn in, but this is certainly the first time a First Nations uh, in Manitoba and in Canada sworn in. So history being made in Canada today. All right, lots coming up, and we hope you hang around for it. We've got a big show planned for you. Uh, rental tracking services are suggesting that the average rent, uh, average annual rent increase on new listings may be off for the next few months. Uh, 
as we move into a low uh, uh, season, I guess, not a lot of people move. But that being said, it's just nuts that uh, 15% uh, increases in the last several months and so and such. We're going to talk about that uh, with uh, Zumper, who manage actually where rental trends are going across the country. Also, we talked to, uh, last week, we talked to, Je- uh, a couple weeks ago now maybe, Jeff Wilmer, Chair of the Board of uh, Directors and Volunteers for Kitchener-Waterloo's A Better Tent City. And and it was just a fascinating discussion as they try to solve the same problem that every major city, big uh, big and medium and large, uh, sorry, large, small, medium and large, that would do, uh, that are experiencing this because it's virtually all sizes of communities across the country that are experiencing homelessness and houselessness and people living in tent villages. Of course, we know what's happened in Toronto or in Hamilton here and what has come out of that and in lack of, of consultation. And then the whole project ends up blowing up. Whereas, you know, in Kitchener, Waterloo, there's a great example of how they're making this work. Uh, and at least, you know, of course, there's challenges. There's nothing great uh, about, you know, coming up with a better way to house people who are uh, who are homeless. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you don't want people to be homeless, but they've got a reasonably good solution here. And it's kind of surprising that cities uh, or Hamilton has not uh, maybe taken a look at some of these before putting uh, their foot forward. We're, we'll see where that's going. But at this point, everything's pretty hush-hush around uh, the hammer and what's uh, going to move forward and, and how we're going to deal with this as we move into the winter. Because, uh, again, this may be a solution over the warmer months or the summer months, but uh, we certainly know what what weather was like here in December, January, and February. So uh, fascinating to see where this goes and uh, and hopefully try to get some help from Kitchener on at least some ideas that work. Uh, this also breaking later on uh, earlier on this afternoon, Ontario's public elementary school teachers have overwhelmingly voted to walk off the job if negotiations with the Ford government end in a stalemate. And that's a big if. <laughs> so, so, you know, well, yeah, anyway, it, it's kind of obvious, but it's all part of the dance. And um, and anyway, so we'll see where that's going. Colin DeMello is going to be joining us at Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and give us an update on all of that and where it goes moving forward. Also, the Red Hill Report is nearing completion. And I remember everybody talking about this way back when, when it started, but you got to get answers to questions, I guess. And the cost is upwards of $28 million so far. How much does it cost to build the highway? Uh, so uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And as I mentioned, uh, Joe Biden is in Israel trying to get a humanitarian corridor opened up to save the people uh, that are in harm's way through this uh, battle between Gaza and Israel. And we're going to talk to our Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini, down there to see exactly what is going on and how close we are uh, to to getting some sort of uh, humanitarian corridor open. We certainly know uh, post-pandemic, uh, it's just it's how difficult it's become to to live, affordability, whether it's rent, whether it's uh, interest rates purchasing or carrying your mortgage, whether it's groceries, gas, what have you, um, it's been pretty expensive. 
However, rental tracking services are suggesting the average annual rent increase on new listings may actually level off for Ontario in the next few months as we enter a slower moving season. Uh, Zumper.com, which is one of them, suggests that rent hikes could actually cool off a bit with the weather as the company's national index has showed a slight slowdown in average increases. These are average. And think about this, like a slowdown in the increases. Uh, so what does that mean for Hamilton? Let's bring in Crystal Chen, Senior Public Relations Manager with Zumper and here now. Crystal, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me. So, Crystal, how do you uh, how do we explain this? Why is why are we enter, entering a slower moving season? You would think with the colder months, uh, people would need shelter. How come we this is a slower moving season? Yeah. So typically, um, you know, throughout the year, the winter is when people are um, they do not want to move, <laughs> and, right. and there's yeah. typically less available options. Um, so. That's why um, property owners generally will price down units to fill in vacancies um, before the holidays. Um, so if any renters are, uh, and it's also, you know, the time where there's the least amount of competition um, and demand is just generally lower. So if there's a renter who is looking for a good deal, um, the next few months and the winter season is going to be where you'll find one. That was my next question, Crystal. Uh, obviously, if we're heading into a period where things are leveling off or at least stabilizing for a short period of time, is this a good time to sign a lease or, or sign in for a year? Yeah. Um, typically, our, our slow moving season starts around, um, you know, end of this month, like to November and then through um, February. So the next few months are definitely going to be when we see um, the least competition and the least demand. So typically rents will start to decelerate from the rest of the year, from the hot moving season, that, which is summer through fall. That being said, Crystal, we have heard, obviously, housing shortage also you know ripples down to uh, or trickles down to rentals and such uh, eventually. How does the shortage of housing in general uh, play into this? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, there's Canada is very supply constrained. I think, you know, CMHC says the national rental vacancy rate is down to 1.9%, um, which is, you know, very, uh, very low. Um, and then with, with the for sale market, you know, with high mortgage rates, uh, many consumers are, you know, opting to stay in the rental market for longer, um, which, again, lowers overall vacancy rates and puts um, upward pressure on prices. And, you know, the people who signed for, you know, 2% um, mortgage rates, you know, in the, in the next year, it's up to eight. Mm. And maybe, and so maybe those owners won't be able to afford that. And then we'll, you know, sell off what they have and turn back to renters. So all of that puts upward pressure on to rent prices. You were talking about how uh, these this stabilization leveling off. I don't want to say it's a deal, but I guess compared to what it's normally been, you know, if you're looking for what whatever a deal would be, now is the time to do it. And you said that starts any time as we head into the into the cooler months. When does that stop? When do people start? Uh, when does it start to tick up again? Uh, typically in the spring months, um, as everyone defrosts from the winter, that's when people start thinking about um, their moves again. 
You know, when you think about it, uh, and again, as I mentioned, it, it, it you know, things, uh, there's a bargain or whatever uh, to be had. But year over year, national rates for both one and two bedrooms have gone up 15%, uh, showing, and obviously, hopefully that deceleration, you know, happens through the winter months. But 15%, uh, that's an incredible amount for people to absorb. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, our last two months, we saw that the national one and two bedrooms were both up over 15%. And then um, in our last report, um, one and two beds were both under 15% year over year. So that marks, you know, the beginning of slow moving season, we think. And then um, so hopefully that deceleration does continue. Um, but yeah, so rates are still high and, and in the double digits. But um, hopefully this data um, this past month will indicate that uh, rents may be finally cooling off a little bit, at least. What about outside of the GTA, Hamilton areas and such? Where do we fit into all of this? Um, so in our latest uh, Canadian rent reports, Hamilton was our 11th most expensive city. One beds are currently at 1780 and two beds are at 2200 uh, one beds are up about 12% year over year, so um, a little less than the national rate, at least. Um, but yeah, still, still um, high year over year. So uh, I know you don't have a crystal ball, Crystal, but uh, that being said, what do you predict the spring? Boom, this just continues. I mean, until we get a really adequate supply coming on stream, this looks like it might be the trend for a while. Yeah, so Canada has actually seen some significant new construction um, happening, but it still has, you know, it's still not being able to meet um, the yeah. high demand. Um, there's so much demand in Canada right now for a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, in the spring, I just see rents continue to climb until there's, you know, enough uh, more supply hitting the market that's available. Crystal Chen with us, Senior Public Relations Manager with Zumper, monitoring rental rates and the best time if you're looking, uh, heading into the cooler seasons as uh, landlords just want to fill the units. Crystal, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. We talked a while ago with Jeff Wilmer, Chair of the Board of Directors, volunteer for Kitchener-Waterloo's A Better Tent City. And, you know, when Hamilton was going through all of the, the challenges that it was going through in, in the North End and people upset and lack of consultation and blah, 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 um, many talked about, you know, it's being done right in other places and maybe we should look at that. And, again, we're all asking questions to why this didn't happen ahead of time. And we really don't know where Hamilton is is at this point, but I thought it was worth bringing Jeff back and just getting a little deeper into how they make this happen, how they uh, make their, 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 uh, their, their camp work for lack of a better, their tent city work and, and their small homes work in an area when it just seemed to be such a contentious issue with, uh, you know, everybody here in Hamilton and Jeff Wilmer, chair of the board of directors, volunteers, Kitchener, Waterloo is a better tent city here now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes. Thanks very much, Scott. So Jeff, did you ever get any, uh, blowback from citizens, blowback from the city, blowback from anything? Like where did the challenges come? When, where, or, or was it relatively smooth sailing for you? Uh, I wouldn't say it was necessarily smooth sailing. It was there was uh, there were some challenges and some some uh, negative response, but for the most part, the community was was fairly understanding that people need help and and uh, something needs to be done to help 
the people who are really struggling. Um, in our case, the city was was really really helpful. Um, at our at our first site, they found a way to waive the enforcement of the zoning bylaw because we were we had set up on a on an industrial property. Um, and in, with our with our current site, and we've been at, on the on the new site for two years now, the city and the school board um, made their land available, and uh, and they've been really understanding towards uh, us trying to meet a need. What were those earlier concerns, Jeff? Uh, the the first concerns <clears throat> came from businesses in the area where we set up uh, in the first instance. This goes all the way back to April of of 2020. Uh, there were some business, so we're in a business park area. There were some neighboring businesses that had some trespass and vandalism, and and they were obviously not happy about that. But for the most part, we were able to manage those concerns, and uh, those businesses generally have. have taken a, a compassionate approach that they understand that what we're doing is necessary and helpful and um, uh, you know that there may be some unintended consequences but those are manageable uh, on that note Jeff and that was one of my questions so let's steer to it now what do you say to those that say this does create this type of area that you're just moving a problem from one area to another and just less people care about it because it's not near a residential area and some have said you know you're creating ghettos so how do you prevent that how how do you how do you relate to that so there's two things really one is we don't want to get too large we have one community of 50 residents uh, there's certainly demand for more, and we could grow larger, but we choose not to. Uh, and now Waterloo Region, the municipal government here, has basically replicated our community with a second tiny home community, with also with 50 cabins. And it looks very much like ours. And so having a good solution distributed in multiple places seems to be one approach. I think the other element of this is Everybody understands, even the people who are opposed to this do understand that it is very helpful to the 50 residents mm -hmm. and to the community at large. That if they were still living rough in a park or in a downtown back alley, there are consequences for the community wherever they are. Um, and, and while we may be concentrating more people in one area, overall, the community does benefit because there's or less resources being spent on policing and bylaw enforcement and emergency health care and all those community costs. I remember hearing um, uh, concerns here in Hamilton that, you know, if you move them out of the downtown core, they're too far from services. You're shoving them into a residential area. How do you deal with that? You know, so most of the services actually come to the site. We have, because we've got 50 people in one place, Healthcare is delivered on site. There's a there's a, um, a community health service uh, like a, a clinic on wheels that comes twice a week, spends three hours there. The practitioners on the bus know the residents by name and vice versa. So they're getting far better healthcare now than they were before. Uh, food is is provided and delivered on site. Um, harm reduction uh, supplies and services are are delivered on site. Most of what the the residents of a better tent city need. Uh, is delivered on site. Now, if they did need to get downtown for whatever whatever reason or two other services, it's walkable. Like it's, it's less than a half hour yeah. walk, ten minute bike ride. So it's it's still in the urban area, accessible to urban services. Is this designed to be permanent or temporary, Jeff? It's designed to be temporary. This is not a permanent solution. I mean, having having people live in an eight foot by ten foot cabin is a step up from living in a tent, but it's not. 
not a permanent solution. We shouldn't settle for this. So this is transitional towards getting proper housing for the residents. How do you keep the peace? Uh, it's not easy, but uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a combination of um, the residents understanding that to be a good neighbor uh, helps you get along with your neighbors. Uh, we have a lot of volunteers and just their mere presence on site creates this respectful environment um, among the residents that if, you know, if, if a tussle breaks out, breaks out that, you know, they were say, you know what, there's, there's a volunteer here. Let's, let's not do this or let, let's, let's take it somewhere else. So mm-hmm. I think that the, the mix of volunteers and residents is also an interesting element of this, that it, that it, um, it, it results in the residents taking stock of the fact that people choose to be here to help us. It's not their job. They, they actually want to support us and serve us. And so I think the residents rise to the, the occasion and, uh, and conduct themselves respectfully. Uh, other cities ask you uh, questions for advice. How you do it? Yeah, so um, we get those kind of questions a lot because this is a, a challenge in communities all across Canada. And the solution we're implementing seems to be one of, one of the better ones, although it, there are many many ways to respond to this, and they're probably all helping different people in different ways. Um, I think a, a key element is, is to get a team together. This is not something that one individual can expect to do. Uh, it's also helpful to get the not-for-profit sector, the faith communities, the municipality, as many parties as possible on board so that you can take a, a multi-pronged approach and, and, and make the best use of all the resources. Jeff Wilmer with us, chair of the board of directors and volunteer for Kitchener-Waterloo's A Better Tent City. It appears they've got it right, and uh, it continues to be on a consistent basis. Jeff, good luck with this moving forward. Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Scott. All right. We have, um, you know, watched over the course of the last couple of months, uh, slowly deals uh, come into play with the government and uh, the education system. Uh, slow process, but uh, it's certainly a lot more quiet than it has been in past years. Uh, but today, Ontario's public elementary teachers have overwhelmingly voted to walk off the job. That's if negotiations with the government end in a stalemate, creating a new pressure point on the province's education system. Uh, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, representing 80,000 educators, received a strike mandate of 95%. To talk more about all of this, Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News, and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So, Colin, you know, it seems, uh, compared to other years, this has been a pretty quiet negotiation uh, situation for a lot of them. However, this might be different with the ETFO. What does this say? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean a strike, but if they don't go well, they're ready to go. Yeah, I mean, this is this is all part of the bargaining process, right? Because there is, according to, um, you know, provincial laws, there is a set of uh, you know, points that you have to reach or arrive at before you can go on strike. So as an example, you know, getting that strike mandate is a legal requirement for the union before they can walk off the job. But between now and actually, uh, you know, leaving the classrooms, there are a few more points that the uh, union has to arrive at before actually, uh, you know, engaging in any strike action. So number one, they've already asked for a conciliator to be a part of this negotiation process. The Ministry of Labor has appointed a conciliator who's been you know, part of the negotiations uh, in the last round, 
And they will be part of the negotiations for the next two bargaining dates, which is scheduled for this Friday and the next coming Friday. Now, if these talks with the conciliator don't go well and they don't end up in an actual agreement, well, the Ministry of Labor will file something called a no-board report. That essentially means that they're not going to appoint a conciliation team to really you know, uh, hammer out the nitty-gritty of a contract. There's no point these two sides have reached an impasse. Once that no-board report arrives, there is a 17-day countdown before the union can legally go on strike. So that gives the school boards the time to prepare schools, parents the time to prepare and find childcare options, and for the government and the union to continue to negotiate for those 17 days before, you know, all heck breaks loose. And then the union, after giving um, notice, can actually walk off the job. So we are, you know, still an eternity away from that mm-hmm. moment, and parents and families will get plenty of notice if that comes to pass. What's different? What's the difference, Colin, between what is going on right now with the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario and what happened with the high school? Because remember, the high school uh, they agreed if they couldn't come to a conclusion that they would go to binding arbitration. Is there a difference between these two processes? Yeah, I mean, you have it exactly right. So uh, there was an offer from the Ford government that. Uh, you know, to all of the unions that will continue to negotiate. And if it doesn't co- end up in a contract, no problem. We'll go to binding arbitration. And binding arbitration actually, you know, tends to favor the unions when it comes to salary. Uh, but the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario had said, look, you know, salary might be one sticking point, but they have other sticking points like class sizes and other issues that they're saying won't end up well if they go to binding arbitration. So they did not take that offer from the Ford government, and they're choosing instead to go through the typical negotiating process. The government is saying, well, the the education minister said to us today, uh, well, you know, how come one union can accept it, but it's not good enough for this union? And they're calling on this union to still accept that offer, uh, but the elementary teachers say they're simply not going to affect, uh, accept that offer. So uh, essentially for this union, it's all systems normal in any negotiation. The other union, OSSTF, representing public high school teachers, they are the ones, well, the only ones so far who are going to go into binding arbitration if their contract talks don't end up with an actual deal. Uh, with one doing one and one doing the other, does it, it does it give one more leverage over the other? Well, it certainly creates, you know, a little bit more of an awkward point uh, for for one union, right? The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario mm-hmm. is certainly probably looking at the other unions saying, what the heck, man, you're, you're really kind of impacting yeah. us here when it comes to our negotiations. But, but let's, not, let's not forget, right? The reality for the people who it impacts, the students, is very different when it comes to high school or elementary, right? If, if high schools go on strike, the students can stay at home. That's, that's yeah, not a big problem. Yeah. If elementary uh, schools go on strike, obviously you're talking about childcare issues impact to the larger economy as well, right? If go mm. trains can't really run on a normal schedule, if all of the, uh, the parents have to be at home with their kids, right? It has a larger economic impact. And, and uh, you know, the, the teachers and the unions definitely know that, which is why they're using this strike mandate to put pressure on the table because the government doesn't want to strike. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. Red Hill Report nearing completion, costing about... Uh, $28 million, uh, which I think we knew, and when we started all of this, that it would get quite expensive. And the politics of the day, Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton, with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you. So, uh, Red Hill Report, we certainly know uh, the pavement issues and such and, and, and the costs afterwards. It, when this all started, did you think we'd reach this figure? No, not at all, especially since we were told by members of council that it was going to be about a $1 million cost. And um, those uh, of us who might have had a little bit more experience with um, uh, public inquiries know that it's a cash cow for lawyers uh, primarily. Um, and uh, the $1 million um, cost was simply a pipe dream. So uh, we knew it was going to be much more than that, but but certainly we didn't anticipate that it would be $28 million and counting, according to staff, there's still other expenditures to come. And that, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I'm afraid to say, uh, is only the tip of the iceberg because what will follow, depending on what the report says, will be all kinds of lawsuits mm. because there are all sorts of lawyers lurking in the winds, uh, waiting uh, for um, Hamilton City Council to do its research for them so they can come back and uh, and sue the city uh, for uh, sometimes serious, sometimes maybe less serious uh, events that occurred over the years. That being said, did this have to be done, Larry? Well, so, you know, if you remember, and, and people forget, of course, but if you remember the the situation um, in the day when it, when the inquiry was called for, um, there, there had been some accidents. Uh, there mm-hmm. had been um, some public statements made by city staff, engineers and such, uh, indicating that the road was fine. It was the speed limit uh, and so on that was creating the, the problems on sometimes careless driving, perhaps, or too fast driving anyway. Uh, and that was creating the problem. And so everybody accepted that. And even members of council sort of said, look, people should be a little more careful especially when the road is wet, as we all should be more careful when any road is wet. But then, of course, they found a report that essentially said, a report yeah. that essentially said that there may have been some problems with the asphalt. And uh, that report never made it to council. Now, reports by consultants, because it was written by consultants, never make it to council. Uh, they always go to staff, and staff write reports based on what the consultants say. The engineer who testified indicated that he saw that report and he wasn't trying to hide it. He just didn't agree with it. And this was an engineer who was an expert and was brought to other municipalities to deal with asphalt and road issues. And he said, look, there's not enough evidence. I don't agree with this. And he sort of filed it in his filing system. But all hell broke loose politically. And of course, everybody tried to cover their butts. And so they thought, well, let's have this, this report, let's have this, this investigation, because staff will be blamed. Well, you know what? Staff is never blamed. It's always the mm. politician's fault. And so they launched into this 
in this cover your butt uh, process uh, that essentially is going to cost the taxpayers a whole pile of dough. What will we learn in the end, though? Well, but, but that's just it, you see, because council made the decision, even before they launched this, uh, this uh, investigation, they made the decision to resurface the whole, um, uh, the whole road. And again, that cost a few million dollars, and maybe that was the right thing to do. But the fix was done already, and mm. we haven't had any more serious problems. They lowered the speed limit. It's checked their police there all the time, even though I was just on it about a half hour ago, and people are still speeding on that road, uh, hmm. which which is disturbing. But what we should learn from this is to listen to staff, do things not for political expediency, do them because they're the right thing to do. And, uh, and hopefully that'll be internalized. Who knows whether it really will. Um, are we to assume, though, Larry, as you just said, uh, clearly things have, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be, that the pavement was an issue then? Well, and, and uh, perhaps the, uh, the, the pavement was an issue, or is it that people are being more careful? Is it that the police are patrolling the road a little more carefully? And is it that we've gone from a 100, a 100 miles per hour speed limit to an 80 uh, kilometer, mm-hmm. not mile, kilometer per hour speed limit. So all of those factors and the fact that it was repaved uh, might figure into the fact that things seem to be better. Although, as I just said, you know, when the police aren't looking and they're not there all the time, they're there frequently, not all the time, people still speed. And there was some guy who was going 80 clicks an hour and there was some guy on my butt, he was tailgating me, uh, within inches of my car, and I had to go over to the other lane because he wanted to go 120 kilometers an hour. So people are still careless and, and might still cause accidents, although I think overall most people want to obey speed limits and things uh, have been better. Larry Deani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, Red Hill report nearing completion, and the cost is upwards of $28 million and climbing. Money's well spent. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Larry, thanks for the time. As always, be well. Pleasure. Thank you. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. So uh, we certainly know of the tragedy and, and, and the destruction that is going on, uh, the, the Hamas uh, attack on Israel and now uh, Israel uh, on Gaza and such. And, and we're just seeing horrific images, including uh, one uh, ones of a hospital that has been hit. And oddly enough, with that situation, Israel says, no, these are wayward uh, Hamas rockets that uh, went astray. And of course, Hamas says it's Israel that uh, has bombed this. And in all of this, President U.S. President Joe Biden is in Israel uh, meeting with uh, leaders there and trying to come up with some sort of humanitarian corridor in order to get help to people who need it most. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, and he is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. What is the objective of Joe Biden being there, and what is a progress report on this humanitarian corridor? Well, on the humanitarian corridor, uh, news coming in just within the last 30 seconds or so. Um, the president uh, spoke with the uh, with the president of Egypt. Uh, we just saw the president just a couple of minutes ago. He was on Air Force One uh, at a fuel stopover at Ramstein Air Force uh, Air Base in Germany. 
Um, and we understand from uh, this conversation that the president had with the Egyptian leader that a humanitarian corridor is going to be opened up and that um, up towards 20 vehicles uh, may be able to bring assistance uh, into um, into the Gaza uh, uh, territory. This obviously is, is is news that that is just coming in, but it, it goes on top of the news that was made by the president earlier in the day uh, when he said that the United States was providing upwards of $100 million in humanitarian assistance uh, to Gaza on top of uh, assistance that's also going to be given to Israel as well. So the, uh, the, the, the president in the region trying to bring some kind of stability in, in, you know, in coordination with the U.S. effort to ensure that this this kind of, you know, conflict that's on the precipice of war doesn't expand to a more regional issue. How difficult is this, considering many are worried that a lot of these supplies will end up in the hands of Hamas? Look, there, there's general concern here. Uh, that part that could be part of the reason we're not seeing um, many trucks come out of Egypt into Gaza. There have been concerns um, and and unverified reports that that uh, that equipment and resources belonging to the United Nations have been confiscated by Hamas. That's not you know corroborated. Um, by anyone, including the United States. But it, but there are concerns here that anything brought into Gaza could fall into uh, the wrong hands and ultimately uh, become more of an issue for the growing crisis that's underway uh, with, you know, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the region that have no affiliation to Hamas as well. At the end of the day, um, you know, the White House sees any effort that it can to, you know, ensure that they're not turning a blind eye to uh, a humanitarian and public health crisis that's growing as a good sign. Um, and if if the border can reopen uh, through Rafa, uh, this will be, you know, additional efforts that they can to help these people who have been forced to move south because of the ongoing bombardment. Uh, you said Hamas doesn't represent all. Uh, can Palestinians distance themselves from Hamas? Or is that too interwoven? How, I know it's a very complex situation, but, but, but how do you determine good from evil here in making sure that people who need the aid are getting it as opposed to terrorists? I mean, look, it's difficult. Oftentimes in these situations, you have, um, you have neutral observers uh, that are going to be on the ground uh, to ensure that, A, the rules of war are being followed and to ensure that that civilians are not being caught up in any of the conflict between uh, uh, two parties. Um, you know, it's growing more and more difficult for, for that to take place. And it's because we've seen, you know, a decimation uh, of parts of, of the Gaza Strip by by the IDF as they work to try and eradicate Hamas and the threat that Hamas poses. Um, there's always going to be a risk that, that you know, whatever effort you're, you're trying to put into a region falls into the wrong hands. And, you know, the, the high hope here is, at least on the American side, uh, is that, you know, the money that's being offered, the aid and the assistance that may be able to come in uh, from Egypt is ultimately going to um, is going to benefit the people of of the Palestinian state. Um, you know, it's also worth remembering here that the president spoke directly to uh, the Israelis today in his speech saying, look, Israel is a democracy. And that means that you yourself are not led by terrorists. There are rules that you need to follow, um, kind of looking to the Israeli government saying, look, we understand that you have a right to defend yourself, but you have to remember you cannot allow civilians to get caught up in the middle of this. Uh, feelings then that Israel's taking this too far, a little too hard. Uh, I mean, there are and have been concerns from within the Biden administration that um, Israel may not have a plan going forward here uh, in that, you know, they're looking to ensure that 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 Israel is seeking resolve and not simply 
seeking revenge. But I think the second question here is, look, Israel has the right to defend itself from that abhorrent mm-hmm. attack on, on October 7th. But the White House is looking what happens after uh, this conflict uh, is over on the assumption that you know, it doesn't escalate and Iranian proxies get involved in it. What happens afterwards? What happens after uh, Hamas may be eradicated? What does Israel do with Gaza? You know, do they try to install some kind of international government via the United Nations? Uh, You know, do they have a plan to deal with with the blockade or the siege that's been in place, um, you know, for years and years? I think that is where the concern is, is looking forward beyond the situation that they're in right now. How do we or even Israel differentiate between Hamas and the average Palestinian? Is it possible? I mean, I, that's that's a hard one for, for me to answer. Uh, I think that yeah. what you're hearing from from the Biden administration, from Western officials, from from people within the Palestinian state, from the Palestinian Authority, from Palestinians themselves, is that that they're denouncing um, you know actions that are undertaken by Hamas. I mean, look, I think it it speaks volumes here that that there haven't been elections in Gaza. Uh, since since something like 2007, because uh, hmm. there is an oppression that is underway by Hamas against the people uh, of of the Gaza Strip, and so many of them, we've seen hospitals dealing with um, w- with with patients coming in, uh, and we have just you know we've seen we've seen civilians be caught up in this, uh, and civilians have said, look. Hamas does not represent all of us. We are simply trapped here. Uh, and then some of the blame gets spread outwards to the Israeli government to say, look, they've they've kind of penned us in. What else are we supposed to do? The question is, how do you differentiate? It becomes difficult. And that's how you end up with um, these potential flare ups uh, of anger from within the Arab world uh, when they see a hospital be struck. Yes, you have mm-hmm. conversations on both sides as to who did it. The Pentagon says, look, they believe uh, and kind of follow along the assessment from the Israelis that this was done from uh, from a hostile actor within the region. But when tensions are this high, things can get inflamed and, and it becomes harder and harder to try and, and focus on the one person that you're trying to focus on. Uh, on the hospital situation, as you mentioned, uh, both blaming the other. Any more intelligence on that? Will there well, be? Look, the, yeah, I mean, look, the president made the news today when he said that Pentagon officials uh, were following along with the assessments that the Israelis put out that this was likely. Um, a, a misfired rocket by, you know, whether it's Hamas or whether it's by Islamic Jihad um, and other Iranian or Pakistani backed uh, proxy that's that's in the region. Um, you know, the information coming out so so kind of quickly and without any kind of fact is what ultimately led to the initial cancellation of the uh, of the sit down that Joe Biden was going to have uh, with leaders of the Arab world. But, you know, at the end of the day, this was a hospital that was struck. And again, the United Nations is calling for for investigations here. Um, because there are, again, rules of, of war that need to be looked at, and, and hospitals are supposed to be safe places, safe shelters. And in fact, it was not only treating patients, but acting as a shelter for uh, for Gazans in the region. The fact that it was blown up, you know, whether it was accidental or on purpose, is going to um, only further, you know, make, te- make tensions worse right. uh, through the region. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. U.S. Uh, President Joe Biden uh, was in Israel. He's in the area and trying to uh, construct a humanitarian corridor to help those in greatest need. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. I must admit, when I read this headline, I thought, why? What? 
uh, because we remember Blockbuster and video rental stores, which is how Netflix started with uh, DVDs and, and shipping them back and forth. And then it has become the streaming um, juggernaut that it is now. Well, now Netflix is talking about opening up a network, which is an interesting term, of brick-and-mortar locations promising to deliver a Netflix, a Netflix experience to attendees. What does that mean? What are we buying? Are we buying old videos, DVDs? No, nothing like that. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19 and Here Now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So, Bruce, what was your first reaction when you heard this story, saw this headline? Yeah, I was a little bit puzzled. I mean, I kind of had flashbacks to the Blockbuster days, you know, and the demise of Blockbuster. But having read a bit more onto it, you know, this could this could work, you know, if they're careful in terms of how many of these locations they have, if they keep them, keep them in major tur- tourist areas, if they have the right assortment. You never know. This could work for them. Now, as you read more into it, and we'll get into that in a sec, is this a retail outlet or is it really a promotional tool? Yeah, it's a great point. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, you know what? The best brands now uh, online have opened up brick and mortar uh, centers, select brick and mortar stores, just to increase brand engagement. Because normally what happens is if you have an online seller, an online entity, when you sort of open up select stores, Consumers get to touch and feel merchandise, connect with the brand, experience things, dine in there maybe, and their brand connection gets deeper and deeper if done correctly. So this is something, like I said, that could work. You know, again, I would be careful on how many units they open, how many stores they open, but uh, definitely could have some legs. Uh, and obviously they're talking about delivering an experience, so sort of installations uh, rotating, like almost like a museum or a science center within these things. And I saw one where they did a pop-up restaurant in in Hollywood, I think it was, or L.A., and they had all of their chefs in that, hook all, that, that, that host all of their cooking shows and did it like you could see how that would be very attractive to customers. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, Netflix owns so many different properties and different shows and brands and People, you know, almost have a cult-like following for certain Netflix franchises. So definitely there could be something there in terms of extending the brand and capturing more kind of spend, if you will, from consumers. I could definitely see it work for food, maybe for T-shirts or other souvenirs or paraphernalia that fit any uh, franchise that really went over the top. So, um, and, and and that's my next question is, is again, it's a great idea to bring in the chefs and whatever, but you can't do that every single day. Uh, you have right. to have some sort of balance in there. What do you think they will, will sell? Is this, you know, like you're going to get Ozark t-shirts or sweatshirts or, or lunch boxes or, or what have you? I mean, or does it have to be beyond that? Like I'm thinking a lot of the old Disney store. Yeah, it's probably going to be beyond that. It's going to have that though. I think it's going to have the basics, like you just mentioned, you know, the t-shirts, the sweatshirts and things. But, you know, supposedly some of it is going to be more, more experiential, maybe almost like a theater type play, you know, where they where they sort of uh, bring in uh, actors and maybe they'll simulate different things. You know, it's also potentially a good place to test new franchises too, like new, new titles and see if they work. But definitely there's uh, an experiential, a merchandise side of it. Probably more than the Disney stuff, though. Probably a lot more and more updated for this, uh, for this decade. We remember when, uh, way back when, when Netflix was competition, as you said, for Blockbuster, which was a brick and mortar uh, store that you would go in and, and rent DVDs or, or videos back in the day. Uh, and then they went from DVD distribution to 
content production and and streaming and they're they're nothing like what they used to be are they on the edge of something here is is, is there something happening here that we don't know what it's going to look like yet or or well, it may be the next thing well i think they're sort of on the edge i mean they, they've they've shown as a company that they could they could modify themselves they could change as the times changed where blockbuster didn't do that and they survived and blockbuster mostly didn't but you know what? Um, they're always playing around with new type of medium. Content is everything. And the thing for Netflix that's tough to remember, they have a lot of competition now. When Netflix first started streaming, they were alone. Now you've got Disney Plus and, you know, all kinds of Crave and everything, right? So they have to differentiate themselves and, themselves and they have to keep on the edge. And this is maybe what the store is going to do to try to take brand engagement to the next level. Is it uh, like a different experience? In other words, you have to go to an outlet to get a different experience of Ozark or see another, just like when the old DVDs, they'd have you, uh, you know, you'd see the movie or whatever, and then deleted scenes or what have you. Would you think this will be an extension of whatever their show is? And if you want to see the rest, come here. Yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, that could definitely be part of their assortment is having something that you have to go in store to get. That way they'll draw people in. You know, it's like it's like having... If I'm a big Rolling Stones fan, which I am, you know, you can get other content. You can pay more to get, you know, meet the band, do all kinds of things. Same kind of thing, except for Netflix. I think that would probably be something they would look at. All right. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19. Netflix opening brick and mortar locations, uh, promising to deliver a Netflix experience. More than just sweatshirts. We can't wait. All right, Bruce. Thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Be well. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Angus Reid has new polling out on whether uh, Canadians think that the Prime Minister should step down. And the trend continues. Uh, 57% say the Prime Minister should step aside. 3 in 10 say stay, according to Angus Reid. 41% of Liberals aren't happy with the leadership as well. And uh, two out of five of, of those that voted liberal before um, think that he should step down as well. As far as who would make the best prime minister, Pierre Polyev coming in at 30, Jagmeet Singh coming in at half that at 15, and Justin Trudeau just one point ahead of Jagmeet Singh at 16. To talk more about all of this, John Rowe is with us, research associate with Angus Reid. And here now, John, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I hope you're well too, Scott. Uh, John, are you surprised that this trend is continuing despite a, a cabinet shuffle a, a while ago and, and now a whole array of housing announcements of late? It, it, it seems to continue. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe not surprised. I think it, it it seems kind of the inevitable conclusion you would come to, I, I guess, after kind of the last couple of years of his declining approval rating uh, with uh, the vote intent for the Liberals also kind of trending downwards over the last two years as well, kind of since the 2021 election, I, I think it's kind of natural to be like asking questions of, okay, what, what is kind of the future of the Liberal Party at this point? And what is the future of the Liberal Party potentially under maybe somebody other than Justin Trudeau? And what does it say when some within the Liberal ranks are questioning the leadership? 
I, I think it's kind of emblematic of the lack of enthusiasm maybe liberal voters have for kind of the party at this point in time. Uh, we've seen quite a few past liberal voters, those who voted liberal in 2021, uh, are now saying that they're voting, they're going to put their vote somewhere else if an election was upcoming. So there, there is quite a few people that would have did vote liberal in 2021 are now looking elsewhere. Uh, and perhaps that's that's part of it. They're looking at this leadership and they're maybe, they're maybe growing a little bit fatigued with Justin Trudeau so far. This is his eighth year at as prime minister, uh, and maybe they're just not too sure, I guess, what the kind of future brings under him with this party. Uh, the prime minister has made it known that he plans to stay on and run for another election. He's not going anywhere. Many said he's, you know, he likes a fight uh, and, and when the challenge is there. Where's the trigger here, John? At what point, how low does it go before they say, sorry, this is over? Yeah, it, it, that's an interesting question. And I think one of the things, I guess, when I was looking back at the data from uh, kind of over the years that we have uh, accumulated on Justin Trudeau and his approval rating, the last time his approval rating was this low was in August of 2019, which was just before the federal election uh, that happened that year where he ended up winning a minority government uh, right. against the conservatives who were led by Andrew Scheer. So we have seen Trudeau, uh, I guess, bounce back from this kind of low approval rating before, uh, but I mean, there has to be at some point uh, enough kind of voter fatigue or enough voter sentiment, especially from those within his own party, uh, to say that, OK, maybe maybe it's time for a fresh face. That was all around the uh, mandatory vaccination issue, I think, wasn't it? Uh, 2019 was like just after the kind of SNC-Lavalin, that kind of scandal. Uh, so it, it it has been. Oh, I'm thinking was, I'm uh, thinking the yeah. one after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, an, I'm an election <laughs> behind. Um, uh, why the why the fall? How, how do you explain this? I mean, many are saying, well, it's been eight years, it's whatever. But it seems that there is one issue after another. It just keeps compiling, just keeps piling on. Well, I think part of it, too, is that we, we kind of did a previous study that uh, looked more at kind of the economic questions and the economic data going around. And right now it is somewhat like difficult economic circumstances for a lot of Canadians. The cost of living has increased significantly over the last two years. Uh, we're seeing quite a bit of like expensive things at the grocery store and all these things that maybe they're looking at this federal government and they're saying, hey, I, you're not helping us enough. Uh, maybe somebody else will have a better vision that could help us with this, especially these economic issues we're facing. Uh, and I, I think this is somewhat uh, somewhat un new kind of economic territory in a lot of ways because of these high high interest rates that people haven't seen for a long time. So, so if not Justin Trudeau, who else is anybody else? Uh, because many say, many who I've talked to, pundits who I've said, who I've talked to, have said, "Oh, if he steps down, whoever is going to replace him is not going to get the numbers that he has." And I think that's kind of the big argument for for Trudeau and why he he would probably want to stay on is because he does feel maybe he has that kind of pull that other candidates maybe do not. Uh, we we asked about some that have kind of been some names that have been floating around as far as potential replacements. So Christia Freeland, uh, who's the finance minister and the deputy prime minister, uh, Melanie Jolie, uh, Anita Anand, uh, Mark Carney, who currently isn't with the party but uh, was the former Bank of Canada governor governor, uh, and. Among those, kind of Christian Freeland is the most well-known, and she also kind of garners the most uh, people saying that, yeah, I'd be more likely to vote for the Liberals if she was in charge. But it, at this point, it's kind of hard to say it, how much, I mean, there is kind of a lot of uh, uncertainty because a lot of these people, a lot of people out there don't really know these other names that much. So it's kind of hard to evaluate them head to head when you're like, I don't actually even know who Mark Carney is. And there are a lot of people out there who say that. What about the NDP and their deal with the Liberals? Has that benefited the NDP? 
That's a that's I think that's going to be an interesting question that maybe won't be able to be answered until the the next election because yeah it, it it's one of those things where like the NDP vote is kind of held pretty stable since the last election uh, it hasn't really trended upwards or downwards but I mean potentially at the at the ballot box people could say well why would I bother voting for the NDP if all you do is kind of work with the Liberals like what kind of options do you provide otherwise but it's one of those things where I think once we see or once we have the next election, it'll be a lot easier to answer that question. I, of course, that was kind of one of the questions that was being asked at the uh, most recent NDP convention, uh, whereas Jagmeet Singh was kind of forced to come out and kind of defend uh, the supply and confidence agreement and what he's accomplished as far as policy goals that maybe wouldn't have been accomplished without it. Uh, but I think there are a lot of questions as to, OK, well, like what has the NDP gotten out of this deal? All right. Uh, majority of Canadians, including two in five past liberal voters, say uh, voters say the liberals should step down. Joining us from Angus Reid, John Rowe, research associate. John, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. Always fun to have Tim Powers in, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and talk about all things political. And he is here now. Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, Scott, I'm well. I'm in St. John's. And I was in a meeting with one of the great big C guys today. Not Alan, but uh, Bob Hallett. So there you go. Uh, planning the next uh, kitchen party? Well, uh, yeah, no, I'm just... <laughs> no, we're, we're both part of... Uh, we're both involved with the uh, university here in Newfoundland. So uh, we, were, uh, we were planning educational endeavors, not uh, kitchen parties. It was, uh, the, uh, the latter would have been more fun. Uh, either way, the the friendliest place on earth, that's for sure. All right, uh, Tim, uh, I was going to talk to you, and we still are, about the convoy and such and, and, and that yep. trial wrapping up. But Abacus Data, uh, new information out regarding Ontario progressive conservatives and Doug Ford. We certainly know about the RCMP opening up the investigation into the Greenbelt uh, fiasco. And, and we got Merritt Staus and the NDP talking about group massages down in uh, Las Vegas. All hell is breaking loose yet. Here are the PCs. With Abacus data, 40% is where they're sitting, up six points. The Liberals and NDP virtually tied uh, at 24%. Uh, is it all because he apology- apologized and walked back the Greenbelt issue? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, but that's the big event in between, right? I haven't had a chance to be fair to go through all of our data because, as I say, I was tied up here, but I, I saw some of the quick top line stuff. I mean, uh, we we are taking the view that right now the bleeding well there's been a rebound never mind the bleeding stopping um, so you know Ford <laughs> you and I talked about this before Ford has seemingly had this ability when he apologizes for things to have it be believed and accepted uh, so I guess from one reading you can make the argument that. Uh, that that uh, that is the case. There might also be something in there, Scott, about you know uh, how deep and significant is the engagement on the green belt. Um, you know, you bring up a very valid point right there because we are led I to believe to bring that up more than one. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'll shut up because I'm accused of interrupting. So go ahead. No, no, you go. You go on the point. No, I, I'm not sure that, that I think I think Ontarians are very, very engaged in the green belt. And obviously, this decision to reverse it shows that. But they're also as much, if not more concerned with table uh, kitchen table issues. Yeah. 
Yeah, and look, I can tell you from our data, looking at that uh, kitchen table issue, so to speak, of whether that be you know price of groceries, price of gasoline, that stuff is leading in every jurisdiction that I've seen we're doing sampling in at the moment. And why wouldn't it be, right? Um, so perhaps, again, I don't want to overreach here. People see an apology and they think, all right, you know, Ford does apologies. We're intend, intend to believe him and he's focusing on the stuff that matters to us. I, I mean, the truth to, to get a real reading on this will be to see where we are two, three uh, months from now, but hey, uh, if you're Doug Ford, you're glad you've gone up because you remember we had data um, prior to his apology that uh, showed that you know, Ontarians were viewing him as being interested in helping his own people and insiders, and this was a negative mark against him. Maybe people view the apology as uh, a, a, a U-turn on that, um, but again, it'll take some time to see where they are from a longitudinal perspective. And it'll certainly depend on, on how that investigation works out. But how we had people... How the investigation goes, yeah, how effective, yeah. sorry to cut you off, how effective the opposition are in, in driving this story and consistent. There's a whole bunch of factors there. But even as you know, as short as last week, people, that's it. He's done. This is going to finish him off. He is done after this whole Greenbelt thing. And it's like, what the... Uh, maybe he's just doing what people want him to do. Could it be something as simple as that? Something as simple as that, but but also, look, we all, it's like saying Justin Trudeau's done, right? Like, as much as people might like him to be done, depending on their political persuasion, um, he, you know, writing him off now would not be wise either. It's also a reflection of the times, right? Like, we, mm. we have these quick engagements with issues and then make, you know, these grand pronouncements about what it means for the long term. That's a pretty foolish thing to do in this era. Uh, what about the NDP and the Liberals virtually being tied at 24? What does that say for the NDP who find themselves in the spotlight of the official opposition and the Liberals don't even have a leader and yet they're tied? Yeah, they got work to do. I mean, look, I, I know Merritt, uh, as I've said to you before, she's a fellow in the Philander. I'm very fond of her as a person. Um, I, look, they they need to find a way to demonstrate they're a better alternative than the Liberals, and they're not currently doing that. They may have also been impacted uh, by the controversy surrounding one of her MPPs that she had to censor who uh, who said some really asinine things from my perspective around uh, you know the whole uh, war in in Israel, so uh, th- that that can be a more potent vote influencing um, kind of action than the green belt because of the very engaged communities that pay attention to middle to Middle East conflict. It seemed that when we were talking in the last couple of days over the Sam, Sarah Jama issue, MPP here in, in yeah, Hamilton right. Center, uh, that uh, uh, that th- they were uh, completely like as this was going on, uh, they're putting out uh, press release after press release of another angle of the Doug Ford Greenbelt thing. They were yeah. looking into the massages in Las Vegas, and then they were going to try to change it to what's going on or the same things going on in Ontario Place. Like it was news release after news release on this whole day with with Sarah. Jama and such. Uh, are they going to have to drop the whole Greenbelt Doug Ford thing until something actually comes out of this and really focus uh, I, on what Canadians are do, or, or, or Ontarians rather are, are thinking about and their priorities? 
Um, I don't know if they need to drop it, but they probably need to think more strategically about it. I mean, these are long play issues, right? You yeah, get big yeah. breaking headlines, but I think you kind of have to build the theme there. And I think, yeah, you know, the massage story gets people or the alleged massages gets all people interested for a few minutes. <laughs> but I think they're it may only last a few minutes, uh, but their the, the, their longer term success is going to be you know, painting a picture that the, the government is only self-interested and they offer an alternative, but they do look to be getting squeezed by the the liberals who some had written off and the liberals, you know, are raising money as well, too. So um, it's not only Doug Ford who has to worry about his positioning. Marit also has to do that as well. Uh, will this be a complete distraction? In other words, nothing be able to be taken seriously from the NDP until they deal with the Sarah Jama issue? Yeah, look, uh, given that the, the, everywhere you go now, again, I'm in Newfoundland and we're, our, our connection to conflict, as you would appreciate, has always been Northern Ireland, but um, because of our proximity to it and many descendants here, but that's what People are talking about the news is covered, saturated as it should be, with everything that's happening in in the Middle East. And if you're in, a, in an odd place to be diplomatically polite to the NDP, or as is often the case, perceived to be too pro, uh, too pro. Uh, or too anti-Israel. Let me say it that way is a better way of describing it. You're going to have troubles, and they are. All right, Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and we didn't even get to the Freedom Convoy because, I don't know, that does anybody... That was the purpose of the call originally. Anyway, we'll get there someday, Scott. We will. We will when it ends. All right, Tim, thank you very much as always, and be well. Take care, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Scott, it's still Halloween. I haven't even hung up my decorations. No giant spiders, no zombies, not even a jack-o'-lantern. And yet now i got to worry about what Santa Claus is going to give my kids this Christmas. In the words of a great philosopher, bah humbug. 